Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. All right, Dev, what's going on? How you doing? You know, I'm doing good. Um, although it's not fall yet, I'm starting to feel uh, the fall in terms of how I feel. The weather is changing, and I, I think I'm catching a cold or something. I don't know. Yeah, I could kind of hear it in your voice. Sound a little raspy. Um, yeah, I don't know if it is the weather change, because in, in the Midwest, it's already fairly cool. I mean, I know you remember living in the Midwest, and mm-hmm. how like summer ended like August. So Mm -hmm. the weather has already changed here, but although I've been flying a lot and whenever I fly, I always get sick just because, you know, people Mm. be like behind you, like coughing and hacking and so I don't know. It's so terrible on that plane when you're on the planes. Uh, I just saw an article um, this morning where they was talking about, you know, the trays where you go through security and you Mm -hmm. put your stuff on. Mm-hmm. Saying how those trays have more germs than bathroom toilets. Oh my god, <laughs> that's so disgusting! But I can believe it. Everybody's <laughs> touching them. Like for that's me, that's right. When I thought about it, I was like, "Yeah, it is true." Yeah, I I usually bring some like wet wipes on the plane so I can wipe down the tray table and the stuff because I've just seen some not so great things on a plane. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I definitely will start bringing my little hand sanitizer because I was like, mm, everybody do touch them trays, man. <laughs> I can only imagine people wiping their noses or whatever and just touching the trays and their mm. shoes and socks, whatever. <laughs> nah. So, so I, yeah, sick, don't know why, but, you know, it could be one of those two things. How, how about you? How's it going with you? Going all right, you know, still same old, same old, busy, semester starting and all that good stuff, two weeks in. So now we're getting to the... the 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 more I guess nitty gritty of the semester you know past the syllabus and getting into the content and early papers do mm-hmm. so it's a lot it's a lot I, I told I said I got to get me a I'm about to actually get me a planner this semester and start writing <laughs> writing That's my so week funny. down and my schedules down because I used to keep everything in my head pretty well but now I'm like oh nah I got way too much going on so yeah and, you know this is also the time that students decide like mm, do I really want to do all this work or am mm-hmm. I trying to switch classes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep <laughs> oh goodness but yeah it it is a lot going on this past week so mm-hmm. you know although I was traveling it was like I could not stay like detached from my phone because why has there been so much going on in like the news and the media? Like I don't know, it's been a lot. <laughs> All right, so I guess we can hop into old Lord news and then see what's yes. going on. All yes. right. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say. Okay, so I'm going to start with some news that I just I feel like is just so outrageous. So a teenager and his grandmother and her friend were driving home from church when they were pulled over. The teen is black. His grandmother is white 
and her friend that was driving them was white. The police pulled them over, pulled out guns, and asked the young man to get out of the backseat of the car because someone had called them to say that a young black man was robbing two old white women. Now, you know, mind you, they didn't ask any questions. Like, if the young man is just sitting in the back seat, you you see nothing is really happening. But yeah, they even pulled guns on him. They like put him in the back seat of the police car, like handcuffed him, put him in the back seat of the police car. And so the grandma was like, "What's going on? Like, that's my grandson." Mm-hmm. And then the police were like, "Wait." Oh, no, the police asked, like, are you okay? You know, is everything okay? And they're like, that's my grandson. We're coming from church. Like, what are you doing? And he was like, oh, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like somebody called the police to say you were being robbed. Um, And so the grandma was like, yeah, probably because they saw a young black man with two like white women. And come to find out, the police officer was like, the person that called was actually black. <laughs> I, when I heard the story, even the grandmother was like, oh, that makes it even worse. Because he she assumed yeah. that was a white person that called. <laughs> Come on, y'all. Don't One be. One of my don't... own. See? Yeah. Yeah. Now, we, now we are own instruments of our own oppression. You got to be careful. Don't do it because we will give you a trading card, too. You will lose your invitation to the cookout real quick. Playing them and you know you want this food, so you better yep. stop. I'll play. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. If you heard about that, I'm sure you heard about this very tragic story where mm-hmm. a man, he's at home. It's 10 o'clock at night. Someone is knocking on his door, demanding that he open it up. Um, witnesses said that the person was using a cop voice. I'm pretty sure this young man looked outside, heard the cop voice, and saw someone in a uniform. He opens the door. The police officer shoots him. Come to find out, supposedly the police officer thought that that was her apartment and therefore shot him as an intruder. Now, I'm I'm interested in hearing the rest of this story and how she possibly thought this because other details suggest that like they had like key fobs that will turn green if the door's ready to open mm-hmm. or stays red if it's like not the correct thing. And they also said that her key was inside like a, a physical key was like inside the lock. If it's not turning, sweetie, it's not your house. Yeah. That that's such a sad story, man. And I don't it just one, it doesn't all add up. You know, why are you just shooting somebody uh at the wrong door? I feel like she 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 should have been tested immediately for some kind of drugs. Yes. Yes. That's what everyone was is saying. That, you know, she I don't think she was tested immediately because she's, you know, she's in her, you know, uniform Mm -hmm. and you know to be honest like i did see like a little video so i guess someone heard the gunshot they started recording you can see her kind of pacing on the phone talking to someone you know we don't know if that's a 911 call or if that's calling her buddies Mm -hmm. the the blue wall the blue shield we don't know Mm -hmm. all i know is that there better be a conviction in this there's no way around it there is no way around it way 
Yes. And I, I like, and it's sad that like, I feel like respectability is like leading to his portrayal in the media because he, he is, people are coming out to, you know, stand up for how much of a great guy he was. So, you know, they can't fall back on like, Oh, he's, a, it's sad that they typically use those narratives, but even his university, you know, talked about like just how he was on campus, like a student leader, a Christian leader. So it's just kind of like you know it, it's gonna be hard for them to hide behind this yeah thing. but also on that note too even if the guy was a jerk and a terrible person when you are at home in your own house just chilling and you open the door for a police officer and get shot dead bottom line same results should happen yes troubling but they are playing up those respects respectability politics mm-hmm. i mean it, it makes sense because it's probably going to lead to a conviction but you know, in this situation, no way around it, like we said. Yeah. And it's funny because if if it was different, if he wasn't who he was, that yeah, we would definitely be hearing about a bunch of like negative things and they would try to use that to justify why maybe, you know, the officer is afraid for her life it's like you said it it shouldn't matter either way but Mm -hmm. it you know it's something i noticed yeah yeah that's what they've been doing you're right and so the the other big news story for the week i'm sure you know you heard it is the nike kaepernick ad Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh yes Oh my goodness. First of all, it is it's such a beautiful ad. Um, and what I heard was that Nike waited to release it until after they signed this like 10-year deal with the NFL. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the NFL would have tried to back out of that deal. Oh yeah. They saw that Kaepernick was about to be the face of their 30th anniversary Just Do It campaign. Mm-hmm. NFL is really upset right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you see that they released a, a like a little statement like, oh, you know, we want to... I, I can't remember what they said, but it was like some BS, like very much a PR, like we want to stand, you know, behind, you know, people and like build bridges and you know, whatever. Oh yeah, the yeah. NFL, yeah, yeah they try, yeah, they try yeah. to do damage control because they, yeah. but I know they they are boiling behind behind scenes. Like <laughs> now, at first, like investors and people that were speculating, you know, they were trying to sell, you know, Nike stock really quickly. I hope people were able to pick up some of that because within like the last day or two, they said that the company's online sales grew by 31% from Mm. Sunday through Tuesday um, following this campaign. Mm. Mm. That's good. I think I heard stocks were down to like $16 or something at one point per share. See, I should have jumped on that because <laughs> I didn't think they were going to like go down that far because I think at first they were like maybe like 70 or 80 or something like that. But like, dang, child, yeah. if you jumped on that. Oh, because even if they went down for a brief moment, they're going to go back up. I mean, it's Nike. Um, it's Nike. But yeah, that whole camp, that whole campaign thing was crazy. You know, just the what they did which was admirable, but then the response of all these folk burning their shoes. You see the one story of the guy who burnt his shoes with his, with his feet still in it? Yeah. Like, come on, man. That's crazy. What, what are you thinking? Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been ludicrous with that whole situation. And like, I appreciate some people saying like, okay, you care so much for the veterans. If you don't want that Nike, how about you donate it to them? 
like homeless yeah. veterans and veterans that are struggling, but we know it's not really about vets. Mm-hmm. I see Nick Cannon went to the went to a Nike store and bought all the socks and donated <laughs> and them all to uh, to the homeless. You see. <laughs> It was actually just a coincidence, but I was flying right after they released uh, the campaign. And I always travel in my Nikes or whatnot. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I would be passing by other black people hitting the airport and they would have like Nike down to the socks. (laughs) (laughs) The whole Nike jumpsuits, Nike hat, Nike shoes. (laughs) I saw one woman, she had Nike everything and a dang old Nike suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. You know, but I was thinking about this too. and, and, And and I had to really think about it, right? And I might complicate this a little bit for some people when we look at and talk about Nike um, and what they did. Like, at first, I was like, good, right? And I still think what they're doing is a good thing, you know, without a doubt. But then I had to, like, kind of sit back for a second and kind of step away from the hype and really kind of critique or think, like, what is Nike really doing here? Because, you know, mm-hmm. we've seen things like with, you know, Black Panther and everything like that and how, you know, it's a good thing, but because it's making a lot of money, is it going to sustain? Do they really care for the change or the cause? Or are they doing it just to get, you know, more shine, right? You're in the uh-huh. middle of a controversy. Of course, you're going to get more hits. You're going to get support regardless. And Nike is a corporation at the end of the day. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I've really been stepping back like, you know, okay, it's good what they did. But I'm like, are they really for the people? And I think a part of the thing, what I think is, um, I think Nike has, they have a lot of foresight. Because when you look at like history, right, and you see that always in a period of time, there's always people against, you know, the grain, right? There are people who were for slavery and then 60 years after slavery, those people who were for slavery look crazy. There are people who were for segregation. 60 years later, those people who were for segregation look crazy. And so in this era, we're living in where a lot of people are for something, right, Trump or whatever, and then 60 years down the line, they're going to look crazy. So I think Nike knows that, and I think Nike is using that to be like, okay, you know, we're going to have people mad at us now, but, you know, 40, 50 years down the line, they're going to look back and we're going to say, you know, we always supported this cause. Yeah. Um, But then I'm also like, they are, they do make money off of black bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Off of these athletes. And so if that's your major form of like advertising and endorsements or whatever, you got to keep them happy as well. And so Mm -hmm. it's a competition because they compete with like Adidas, they compete with, um, you know, Under Armour, whomever. And so if you're trying to get the best black bodies, you're always, and you're putting forth these ads, then, you know, they can say things that Adidas are not saying and then Under Armour are not saying when they're trying to get these contracts with these top black athletes. Uh-huh. So it's like, hmm, I get it. It's a good thing, but I still have to kind of just look a little bit, you know, make sure that, uh, are you doing this f- for real, for real? Do you mean it? Or are you doing it because you keep trying to keep that money to come in your pockets down the line? Yeah, like 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 people saying academia problematize, problematize <laughs> and no, and people, you know, I, I agree. Like this is a corporation, this is a company. They about them dollars. So you know, don't don't lose sight of the fact that like it is very awesome what they're mm-hmm. doing. Not just mm-hmm. with Kaepernick, but also with Serena, which we got to talk about in a minute. Uh, in a minute. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't hold their feet to the fire about their labor practices or just 
about yeah. like problematic things that they do in general. And it's not like we can't recognize that like as awesome as this advertising campaign is, they are a company, you know, what do, what does their workforce look like? You know, yeah. are they hiring people that look like you mm-hmm. and not just making money off of people that look like you? So I, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, you know, never go to one extreme or the other problematize yeah. things. And making money off the struggle. I mean, if you think about, too, what they did, right? All they really did was take a picture of Kaepernick's face and put the quote. And then it went wild. You know what I'm saying? As far as marketing. Mm-hmm. Did, did they really invest in communities? Did they hire people in, in certain positions? You know, they just did what companies usually do. And it was very simple. You know, put an ad up on Instagram or whatever. And it went viral and it caused all this ruckus. But they really didn't do much, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As far as creating, already trying to create change, like what are you doing? Now, maybe we can say, like you said earlier, them doing this kind of sliding the NFL, if you will, <laughs> you know, and then releasing it. Maybe that is their way of like creating change. Like, okay, now we got y'all, y'all money and now you're going to have to support this because otherwise it's going to hurt your money too, right? And making them choose. Or it so, might I mean, further look like collusion because yeah. if, for instance, more than like, I think if more than so many teams were to drop them because of this Kaepernick thing, it might strengthen Kaepernick's case. Mm, yeah. So it puts the NFL in this crazy situation. So who knows? Like, again, I'm not trying to not, knock it, Nike at all, but I am just trying to, like, not get caught up in the hype and just, like, look at it, you know, from a critical lens for a little bit and just make sure we're not getting duped because we, we can get duped sometimes. <laughs> no, but oh, not only did Nike, you know, have the Ka- Kaepernick campaign, but like when the French Open kind of went after Serena Williams because mm-hmm. of her Black Panther cat suit, you know, they had the ad, you can take the superhero out of her costume, mm-hmm. but you can never take away her superpowers. Mm-hmm. And they also had this other one that was like, girls come from Compton don't play tennis, they own it. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was beautiful because I'm I'm pretty sure you're a sports person. You probably watched the US Open mm-hmm. this past weekend. Um, yeah. Oh man, let's talk about that for a second. Um, Here. First off, every time Serena makes it to the finals, I always be in my emotions. I always have be anxi- have a lot of anxiety, you know, because I want her to win. I want her to beat that record. And so going into it, you know, it was like, okay, you're on your home turf, you know, you're in the U.S. Open. This is where you, you got this. And the whole situation just got crazy. And it's really sad because, and for those of you who don't know, um, uh, the, during the U.S. Open, it was a championship um, Serena was playing a young woman by the name of Naomi Osaka, who was representing Japan, but is also American as well. I think she has dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she moved to like New York or whatever when she was three years old. But she's so she's half Haitian, half Japanese. So she's also a woman of color. And so it was cool seeing two women of color going at it for the championship. Um, and everybody has a lot, you know, she's an up and comer and kind of almost like a young Serena. And Serena was her role model. She really wanted to play her in this championship. But during the match, there was a lot of controversy because the ref um, really was calling these penalties on Serena that rarely happens um, in tennis overall. Mm-hmm. Um, they said her, She said the ref said her coach was coaching, uh, which he was, he admitted to, but Serena didn't see it. Um, and so she was upset because she was like, hey, I'm not cheating. And so she confronted the ref on that and was like, hey, don't do that. You know, I'd rather lose than, than be called cheating. I'm not a cheater. He was just giving me a thumbs up. Um, and then after a, a, a bad game when she served, she didn't smash her racket. And then the ref uh, docked a point, penalized her a point for them and gave Osaka a point in the next game. And then 
during the break after the next game, Serena was talking to the ref, asking for an apology and all this other kind of stuff. And she was like, you know, and you stole a point from me. You're a thief. That's what she said. Uh-huh. Then he went and docked an entire game where he gave an entire game to Osaka in a very close match. I mean, this is the championship. It's intense. It's the second set. Serena needs every point, every game she can get to stay in it. And she gave um, he gave Osaka an entire game, which pretty much decided the whole thing because so Osaka was up 5-3. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I I feel like that was not just um, a very incredibly um, horrible thing to do to Serena, but I feel like it also overshadows Naomi's win, which, you know, she was doing so well. I have no doubt that she, you know, she could have just done it either way, but I don't even feel like she wanted that game. I don't feel like she wanted, you know, those points because Mm -hmm. it's like, I remember there was like at one point where I think she had like, um, you know, scored um, or, you know, gotten an extra point or something like that. You can see her like cheering her own, you know, athletic abilities. Like, yes, I'm really doing this. And I felt like she kind of got deflated when her, you know, kind of score overall went up to five and Serena was at three. I don't know. I might just be looking into things, but, you know, she was doing it on her own. I felt like that was a lot of the ref's ego in it and like Serena says sexism because people started like listing all of these incidents with like past male tennis player and saying like they've said like so much worse and they've never done this in like a championship man well I tell you because you know I watch Kristen likes to watch both men's and women's and so you know I'll be watching people like Djokovic and Rafael Nadal one, they are always talking to their coaches right? I mean that is and in between sets or whenever they're always looking up and whatever language you're speaking, having like clearly dialogue with the coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, Djokovic, he has a temper. He gets mad and he goes off on the judges and the refs quite frequently all the time. And never, never is there like a penalty call, you know what I'm saying? Or people deducting points. I mean, this is the first time I ever saw it. And even her coach said, listen, people coach all the time. Even the announcer said it, who were former professional tennis players said, yeah, people get coached all the time. It's a part of the game. You might get a warning, but that's it. But never have they seen a whole point, get points get deducted or a whole game get added to another person. Like that was a first, especially in the championship. So for those of you who are not watching tennis, it was like a very, very rare occurrence. And it does raise a lot of eyebrows because, you know, it's like, what's really going on here? Um, And why are you really, he said, he said he was uh, verbally threatened by uh, Serena, and that's why she gave the the point. He gave the point to Osaka the whole game. Honey, he he just he's afraid of all that beautiful black woman and that she exudes that black power that she exudes without even trying that's all that is because there was nothing I was watching it she was upset she was emotional but there was nothing threatening about what she did Mm -hmm. and you know one thing that kind of stood out to me is she was it seemed she was less upset about potentially losing and more upset about this idea that she was a cheater. Mm-hmm. She's like, you know, don't attack my character. Like I'm a mother. I mm-hmm. will never do that. Cause like, she's saying like, I'm going to stand up for women. I want to stand up for my daughter and I'm going to show her what, what it is like to lose with great. Cause she, even though she lost, she still lost with grace. Mm-hmm. You know, she was upset, but like the way she handled herself on that podium afterwards, she was like, don't even make it about me. It's about this young woman who won. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like seeing that, you know, Serena has been met with like more drug testing than anybody. Mm-hmm. So I understand 
why that insinuation that she had somehow cheated or she was, you know, she was like, I'd rather lose. Mm-hmm. You know, I would lose before I cheated. And yeah. just seeing that, it was kind of like, that's where some of that was because people are always trying to diminish her. Yeah, they are. And, you know, I felt like, oh, and I was watching the match. And even though I wanted Serena to win, that, that young girl was beating her, right? <laughs> yeah. Probably would have won the match. But, and that was her first Grand Slam ever. And she was crying on the stage, upset. Um, and she said like, oh, I know you wanted Serena to win because people were booing and she thought people were booing at her. Right. I don't mm-hmm. think she really understand. You know, we're watching from TV. We see what's all going on. We hear the audio. She's in the game. She's focused. She doesn't know all, all of this was going on and what we see. And so she just hears the boos and she thinks everyone is booing her, which is really sad. You know, and then I'm glad Serena stepped in. Like you said, she handled it with grace and class because she was like, hey, guys, no boos. It's about Naomi right now. Let her have her moment because what everybody was really was just do- booing the system, you know, booing mm-hmm. the owners and everybody who yeah. who's in charge. Booing all those other people on the stage. Like mm-hmm. they, they didn't want anything to do with them. And so like, you know, to see her, I was like, wow, she looks so sad yeah. for this to be her like first, you know, major victory like this against somebody that she admired. It was, it was heartbreaking. And I was happy that it was just kind of like no booze. Cause I actually felt like I saw like a sigh of relief mm-hmm. on Naomi's face when Serena was like, no booze, like, let's do this. And then that's when the audience just like started clapping. And, you know, it was just, you know. Serena pretty much is like, hold the booze. We gonna handle these people later. Let Naomi have her moment. I also love that she was like, if I come back to the Yep, yep. I'm glad she threw that in there too. Like, yeah, let them know. Like, she ain't playing with these people no more. They better correct some things. Serena Serena is the major attraction, you know, whether they want to believe it or not. Yeah. Um, because I don't watch tennis all the time. Like, I used mm-hmm. to watch it sometimes, like, growing up. But as an adult, like, it's really when I'm watching Serena. Mm-hmm. And that's most people. You know, you're not alone. Um, but, yeah, so that was a sad situation. But like you said, one of the things Serena did highlight during it is being a mother. Um, and, and the identity that comes with that. And especially being a black mother in this world. And so, you know... We have the topic we're covering today is with Dr. Marlo David from Purdue University, who wrote a book called Mama's Gun, which really really looks at the identities of motherhood, black motherhood um, through popular culture. Right. So in her book, she covers things like Precious, the uh, the character, um, the movie, the Precious from the character, the movie and also the book. Um, We cover people like Tyler Perry. We cover Erica Badu and all these representations of black motherhood. And it's a really cool conversation. And I think, you know, what we've seen with Serena will also lead way, segue into this conversation, what we'll be having with Dr. Marlo David on the topic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about it to talk about images of black motherhood. Um, Serena is a black superwoman. And like, you know, like you said, she got the superpowers. She's a mother. You know, she was also a central figure when we talked about um, the the issues that black mothers face when, you know, they're giving birth because she mm-hmm. was also central to that. So, you know, yeah. it's interesting that she came up again when we we're about to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. black maternal figures in the media. So, mm-hmm. yeah, before we get into that, just a quick reminder as well, as we announced last week, we are, you know, we want to have listeners on once a month. So please reach out to us if you would like to be 
on an episode with, with us uh, talking about current events and topics like things like the Nike ads and Serena and these police issues we're seeing or whatever else is coming up in the news um, that you would like to have conversations about. We want to have our listeners engage with us. And so we're willing to bring one listener on a week uh, when we posted it. We've been getting some good feedback. People are interested, feel like it's a really good idea. So we're excited. So in order for it to work, you got to reach out to us and so make sure you're doing that. And also another very special announcement. Uh, we will be having a our first BHD campaign, donation campaign. Join BHD as we get ready to give back with our first ever donated campaign called Tease for Degrees. Where 100%, yes, 100% of the proceeds will be donated to the United Negro College Fund. All you have to do is go to our website at www.blackandhollydangerous.com. Click the link that says Tease for Degrees and purchase a Black and Holly Dangerous t-shirt or hoodie. Hurry now because this is only a 20-day campaign. So get your orders in now. When you get your t-shirt, use the hashtag Tease for Degrees and tag us on social media and you can get featured on our website. Remember, your purchase goes towards helping students of color get scholarships for college. So help BHD spread the word with hashtag Tease for Degrees. So as you heard, make sure you go on, you click go to our website, click that link, buy these t-shirts, share it with everyone, uh, because it's really for a good cause. We want to make sure that we're helping our young black people get into college and get scholarships. And we want to make sure we're doing it by giving us our, giving funds to the right places and doing the right thing. Absolutely. Um, so buy our, buy our t-shirts and buy as many as you can, or at least share if you can't buy it, if you can't afford it. They are at a very affordable rate compared to other t-shirts. So shouldn't really have an issue there um, but just help us out by giving back and, and and you know being a part of the BHD campaign agreed all right all right let's get started all right let's get into it mothers are central figures in black american life literature and culture however dominant images of black motherhood in the media often draw on negative stereotypes that pathologize black mothers and women more generally Today, we take a look at the various representations of Black motherhood in the media by interviewing Dr. Marlo David. She is the Director of African American Studies and an Associate Professor of English and Women, Genders, and Sexuality Studies at Purdue University. In our discussion in her book, Mama's Gone, Black Maternal Figures and the Politics of Transgression, Dr. David provides alternative ways of thinking about non-normative maternal figures that are often deemed as bad mothers within dominant narratives about Black motherhood. We welcome Dr. David. Hello, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Yes. Yes. So one thing we like to do in the beginning of our interviews, just to kind of break the ice and also get our intro, get our viewers to um, know you a little bit better. It's for our listen for our uh, it's for our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. Um, tell us about yourself, kind of what led you to do your research and where you are today. Okay, yeah. So as you mentioned, um, I'm an associate professor of English and women's gender and sexuality studies at Purdue University. Um, I specialize in courses uh, that focus on Black women, contemporary African-American literature and culture, um, Black feminist gender and sexuality studies. Um, so sort of a broad range of topics that kind of meet at the intersection of Black women, culture, and, and politics. Um, 
is, would be the best way to, to describe kind of what I do and what I teach. Um, in addition to my, my faculty position, I'm also the director of the African-American Studies program at Purdue. And so through that, I, um, you know, lead our undergraduate and graduate um, opportunities uh, in African-American studies for students who are interested in you know, gaining more experience, understanding and knowledge of the history and contributions of uh, black folks throughout the diaspora. Um, so, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a broad ranging set of topics. But I think, you know, that heart of um, sort of what is um, what constitutes black life? How do black people think about, write about, talk about, perform um, and consider ways uh, to uh, work against the kind of uh, structural oppressions that they face, as well as to live freely in and of themselves. And so um, I think my most recent work, my book really emerges from that kind of intersection of interests. It really sort of sprang out from my own um, really curiosity about my own life, I think drove me to think about a, a topic on black motherhood. I am a mother. And while I was in graduate school, I was sort of navigating these various scholarly pursuits, but also trying to understand how my position as a black woman and as a mother, um, affected how I was understood and perceived and also how I was able to read and understand other representations of black motherhood. And you know, as I think most of us know, I think is a pretty common understanding. There are a lot of stereotypes and negative images about black women and specifically about black mothers that we are negligent, we are violent, we are victims, we are, you know, all poor, we're, you know, not caring or nurturing, we're harsh, you know, all these hosts of, um, we're dependent on welfare, etc. And so um, I really became interested in thinking about about where those stereotypes and controlling images come from, as well as what do we do about them? How do we think about those um, controlling images? Where do they pop up in our culture, in our films, in our novels? And, you know, what do we make of that when we see these kinds of characters in books? So that's really what kind of led me to this current research project and, and Mama's Gun specifically. No, that that's so awesome. And I, I love the title Mama's Gun. Um, <laughs> the full title for our audience is Mama's Gun, Black Maternal Figures and the Politics of Transgression. So you, you've talked a little bit about like what led you to that. And, you, you know, you focus on your own experiences. Um, but what what does the title mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get this question a lot. I love it because I love that my title is is provocative. It's something that people are like, what does that mean? Um, so, I mean, A, I'll start with the fact that I'm an Erica Badu fan. And mm -hmm. Mama's Gun was a title of an album she put out in the um, early 2000s entitled Mama's Gun. And, you know, it's arguably probably one of her most sort of experimental um, albums, a lot of uh, confessional songs, a lot of songs about herself, her life and her own experiences um, 
dealing with, you know, love and relationships and her own um, experience as a mother. And so I was always, um, I always thought this title was really um, enigmatic and really spoke to Erica Badu's own kind of play with words. And so later, as I was kind of starting to think about the this book project, I found an interview where she talked about where the title actually for her mama's gun for the album, where it came from. And she started talking about, you know, uh, these instances that sometimes we have as, as young people, we find out, she says, you know, you know, what do you do when you find out your mama is carrying a gun? Like she's packing heat, literally, like there's a gun in her purse or she's got guns in her house. And, and what a surprise that can be, right? Whether it's your own mother, your big mama, aunties or whatever, you know, you, you know, you're thinking, here's this this person that is my nurturer, my protector, but she's also, you know, got this other edge to her. And I, I just love that metaphor. And she used the metaphor of Mama's Gun to talk about how she uses her art making, her singing, her performance style, et cetera, to you know, equally surprise her listeners as much as you would be surprised when you find your mama's gun. Right. And so I love that, that metaphor too, of surprise. And once I kind of hooked on to that as a, a, a way to think about what these uh, mother figures were doing in, in the novels I was researching, I also started to notice in the literature itself, all of these recurring instances of, um, Black women writers using guns and the, you know, vocalization or voice as metaphors for power and strength and ways of overcoming um, adversity. And, and so I started to really see that this is a longer standing um, concept within Black cultural production that um, Black women use their mouths, their their talking back, their sass, you know, what some people call sassiness, right? That, that old idea. But these ideas that you can use your voice to talk back. And um, part of the book's focus is on how we use um, the vernacular, how black people use our vernacular language, that commonplace, you know, whether we call it slang or ebonics or, you know, you code switch between your home, you know, language and your, your proper standard English, those kinds of things that we do when we're in our vernacular spaces um, of language, a lot of times you know, that's where we can be the most resistant to some of the forces that we're facing. And the vernacular, I'll also say, I mean, the vernacular is not just language. It can be how we dance, the music we listen to, right? You know, vernacular is well, the foods we eat, right? Just that common every day, how people are in, when they're in and among themselves. Um, th there's a rich history of a celebration of Black vernacular in our literature. And I really wanted to think about how Black um, mother characters were using those vernaculars, using their voices as their mama's gun, as that surprise, as that metaphor of strength and power um, over these stereotypes and controlling images of their, um, 
unfitness, so to speak, uh, um, as mothers. So it, it really kind of came out of there. I, you know, all credit goes first and foremost to uh, Badu, who gave, you know, whose wonderful album gave me the idea and then just helped me piece together these other other pieces of the puzzle. And I'll just add one other footnote. Um, when you read the book, uh, I, I describe my own personal history, my own personal story of discovering this this mama's gun. Like when I was a young woman, or really more like a teenager, you know, realizing, finding out from the stories of my grandmother and my great grandmother about my uh, great grandmother, who was a bootlegger. She was a wild woman who carried guns and always had guns in her house. And she, um, in part, had to have this, these guns for her own protection. Um, this was, you know, in the early uh, 1900s, you know, the Klan and, and other kinds of groups were prominent all over the South. And I, um, I grew up in North Florida and, and North Florida is no different, um, in that way. So, you know, a lot of, uh, country folks had to have, you had to be armed at all times in order to protect themselves, um, from those kinds of things, but also, you know, owning a gun or having a gun was also, um, a way to protect yourself from men, um, who were either maybe violent towards you or would steal from you and other kinds of things. And so my great grandmother, you know, by the time I really knew her, she was very elderly and a, just a sweet old lady. And I couldn't imagine in a million years that she was this like pistol packing lady back in the the thirties, the twenties and thirties, as she was out, you know, carrying on and stuff. And so for me, I have my own mama's gun, um, story. That's that, that moment of surprise. And it, reframes who we think these mothers are. It reframes them not just as a symbol, but as these whole people who are facing all kinds of challenges. And so, um, you know, Mama's Gun has all these sort of multiple meanings for me. No, definitely. I appreciate that. And I definitely appreciate in the book when you do um, discuss the difference between the vernacular, right? Between bad mother and a bad mother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, you know, it's good it's repurposing that language is a part of, you know, what happens in the community. Um, and, and and I think that's what the book is uh, attempting to do. And it does do right. It, addressing that and what it means in these different variations and distinctions of black maternal figures. Um, and so let's get into the book a little bit more. Um, yeah. You begin the book. Uh, it's definitely one of the earlier chapters talking about young mothers. And you focus on the book Push, um, which is uh, the movie Precious is based off of for our listeners who may not be familiar with that. And one of your major points in the chapter is pretty much how motherhood can be a transformative experience, especially for Precious, who's the the main character in the book. So why is it why is this important to highlight when we're kind of trying to counter the traditional dominant narratives associated with young black mothers or even teenage moms? Right. I, I think this is a, such a, a key question because we still are, uh, we still carry around a lot of that stigma, the teen mom, the teen mother, teenage pregnancy, as if it is in every single case, always the worst thing that ever happened to a young woman. And and I think it's really important too to always think about the sort of gender dynamics of you know, teen pregnancy as, you know, a life sentence for a young girl, but yet we don't necessarily believe that for 
the father of, you know, the teen father or whoever mm-hmm. the father may be for these children, that we don't have the same narrative. And so I, I, I really wanted to, um, in thinking about this novel that then became this very popular um film to think about, you know, what is it that we're saying when we have these categories, the teen mother who is, you know, her her life is over. And so, I mean, I think there's certainly, uh, you know, lots of reasons to talk about why um, teen pregnancy may be limiting factors, right, in a young woman's life. So don't get me wrong. It's not to say, okay, everybody just have a baby when they're 13. (laughs) No. But I think what we also need to do in tandem with, you know, clear uh, protocols and policies around safe sex, around contraception, around abortion access, like that we also need to have that conversation that says for some young people, for some young women, the actual experience of becoming a mother, even as a teenager, is transformative. And the transformation really is up to the social space around this young woman to experience. So, for example, in the novel Precious, we have Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in the novel Push, which the movie Precious is based on, Precious is the main character. And she is, I mean, she's living the absolute uh, sort of, you know, most marginalized existence. And there's a way in which Sapphire writes this novel. It it comes out in 1996. So at the heart of these sort of deep stereotypes about welfare motherhood, the absolute sort of basic ideas that Black family structures are damaged, that we are inherently dysfunctional as parents. And so we have this characterization of of Precious and her mother and father that in some ways really reaffirms that, right? We we have a mother who's abusive, who is uh, violent, uh, a mother and a father who are sexually abusing their child. She is uneducated. She is you know, not well fed. I mean, all of these, these factors are happening to precious, um, in the novel, but what I think the novel ends up doing and what Sapphire does as a novelist is to think about what would it take to transform those experiences for precious. And it absolutely hinges on her experience of becoming a mother that she suddenly sees her role in the world as something, um, that is, uh, that contributes, right. If only to contribute to the life of this, the the children that she has. Right. So, so she has the impetus to learn to read that happens at the exact same time that she's, um, uh, pregnant with, with her second child. And so she's on this literacy quest. The literacy quest is a, is a, is a very common, um, theme in African-American history from the beginning of the slave narratives seeing characters pursue the, the, the ability to read and write and express and participate within the society is a key element of our literature. And so we see Precious as a, as a figure in this long history of individuals who are pushing for visibility and, and participation in society. And for her, it happens as a young mother. And so in that, in that chapter, I really argue for a way of, let's stop thinking about these young 
young women as teen mothers or that teen pregnancy is this sort of uh, trap or death sentence uh, for a life of poverty and and, uh, sadness for a young woman. But what if we could think of this as just a a younger motherhood? And what would it look like to support young women as mothers, you know, what, what kinds of ways would we transform children's lives if we can say, okay, yeah, your mother was, a you know, became a mother while she was a teenager. That doesn't stop you, your family, um, from pushing forward. That shouldn't be a stigma. So that's kind of the, the focus. And I feel like the novel push does a better job of communicating that than I think the film Precious. And I know there's been lots of conversation and controversy about the film Precious. I didn't particularly love it, um, in, in part because I think it did somehow diminish some of the, the work that um, Sapphire did in the novel. Mm. Yeah, I always think books are always better anyway. Right, right. There's so much more there, right? Yeah, you just can't. Films just can't do enough in just an hour and a half or two hours. Um, but kind of even following up on that, right? Um, mm-hmm. One of my follow-up questions to that while we're on this topic, because, you know, my wife and I, um, she always watched Teen Mom, and then we got together, I started watching it with her. Right. Uh, and, you know, one of the things about Teen Mom, which always kind of just frustrated me, was that they always pretty much just have, you know, young white girls on there um, right. and kind of following their experiences, being young moms and stuff like that, which, you know, provides some sympathy, which provides more nuance to what goes on being a young mom. But it really frustrates me because they never really show young black women in those same experiences. And even within the young women, you still like how we talked about with Push, you know, how they try to, I guess, typecast say that the black family is always dysfunctional and stuff like that, where there's tons of dysfunction in these white families as well. And it's not anything that's just unique to, you know, the black experience. So I guess it's good in that aspect, but I would like them to have, you know, kind of a side-by-side comparison, having young black moms there as well. So I'm just curious to your thoughts on that. When we see shows like Teen Mom that are, have been running for a while and kind of only really show one experience, do you find that problematic or just kind of what are your general thoughts on that? I'm curious. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, so here's the thing. I, I to me, the addition of black characters on a show like Teen Mom will only produce, I think, the kind of outcome maybe you or I would seek. Um, if Teen Mom itself, the show, uh, really transformed the formula that they are working with. So in some ways, the show, and I do a small critique of Teen Mom in the book um, to talk about the formula, right, that is often, again, used to um, you know, create, I think, sort of the gender norms around what teen motherhood means versus teen fatherhood. We see mothers coping with these pregnancies very different than the fathers. We see the family dynamics very different. So in some ways, the show um, maintains, I think, uh, some some basic gender um, power dynamics that I don't think are necessarily transformative. Um, mm-hmm. I think they also again, they do play on family dysfunction and um, are not necessarily, in the, I guess in the name of sort of quote unquote reality TV, are not necessarily always meant to intervene into these people's lives, but to sh- kind of allow their unspooling to sort of happen in front of us. And so mm-hmm. for that reason, I feel like that formula might not be able to accommodate Black characters in a way that would be 
um, you know, uh, not positive. I mean, it doesn't have to be positive, but something that's transformative or something that subverts the norms. Um, I would be afraid that a show like that would simply bring black characters on. And they have occasionally had black characters on Teen Mom, but it's, it, you're right, it's rare. Um, but that it would, it would, it would still you know, capitulate to those stereotypes. So suddenly Mm. we would start to see the black families in those, in those modes that we're already familiar with. Right. So Mm. I, I just, those are the, that kind of show, you know, I'm not necessarily wouldn't see the potential for transformation there. Now, what I would love to see, this is something I've had conversations with my friends about. I don't know if you all remember this movie, Juno. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's Ellen Page and uh, Michael Sarah and Juno's, you know, she becomes pregnant in high mm-hmm. school with her kind of nerdy friend. And there are these like nerdy, quirky, you know, white kids, you know, trying to navigate their, their, teen pregnancy and, and all this. And they find an adoptive family and build this relationship with the family. And it's just, it's funny. It's heartwarming. It's charming. Um, the writer of that film won an Oscar for that film. What I, I, you know, we don't get to see the funny, quirky, interesting version of that for black families. Mm -hmm. We don't get to ever imagine black, young black women in anything other than either, you know, the trauma of precious or really nothing at all. Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. know that we have yet to have enough filmmaking that shows that all the, 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 the multiplicities of what that could look like. That's uh, again, um, human and heartwarming and uh, quirky and interesting and funny and all those things. It's, it's, you know, I think our, the storytelling that, that we get to do oftentimes is very loaded down with either sort of this, like we have to, you know, we have to make this political message or it's a stereotype. And, mm. and, and those two, you know, ends of the pole don't give us much in between. So I'm, I'm still waiting for our black Juno. I'll put it like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely understand and agree. Um, and that's why I feel like it's a good moment um, in in terms of entertainment for us, because we see people trying to come in to like do some different things. So we have a lot on the horizon. I agree. I absolutely agree. I think we're in a really nice space of um, creativity, people realizing, I mean, like yourselves, I mean, that you can you can you can make the media and entertainment that you want you know, we have these, these tools, uh, available to us. And so let's just make our own stuff and get it out there and mm-hmm. tell our stories the way we want, um, without, uh, all the other baggage. So, yeah, I think, I think these things are happening. Definitely. Um, so, you know, getting, um, or talking more about your work in another chapter, you discuss Mrs. Ba- Ms. Badu, mm-hmm. who I also love, mm-hmm. um, and you, you know, kind of relate her to the concept of mothership. So what does that mean? And how does her creative work fall into uh, the space and mission of Mama's Gone ideology? Yeah, that's so. Yeah, I, 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 I was super excited to write this chapter on Badu, having used her title um, to kind of inspire the book in itself and then to kind of delve into her work more specifically um 
and not just her as uh, a singer, but I really wanted to kind of expand our thinking about um, Erica Badu as a sort of performance artist who is you know, making interventions in, in terms of sort of visual work, in terms of uh, linguistic work that she's doing through her interviews, her persona, these name changes, her um, physical uh, appearances and things like that. So what I really wanted to focus on is, is her notion of the mothership. We have a concept, a kind of vernacular concept in, in African-American culture of the mothership. We can think Parliament Funkadelic. We can think Sun Ra. We can think of all these sort of Afrofuturistic expressions of the mothership. And, and they exist all over the place. And we consider the mothership in those vernacular forms to be... Um, I guess one way might be to think of it as like the source of like black freedom, right? You know, the mothership can't save you or, you know, I'm trying to get to the mothership, right? This is this, this is the place, this imagined place where we could, if we could get there, we could get back to kind of the source of our, um, ourselves, right? Without all this other stuff going on around us. Um, and so I was really intrigued by the mothership as a concept. And Badu is really one of the few women who invoke motherships in their music and in their work. Mothership, again, typically pops up in these sort of funk iterations of other black men um, performers, but but is rarely mentioned in that I could find as I did my research um, in black women's music. So I found her to be um, kind of unique in that aspect of tr- kind of using that particular vernacular um, space. So from that, I kind of started to think about, well, what does that mean for her? Because she literally is a mother and she is a mother of um, three children and each of her children have different fathers. And she's been very vocal about the kinds of relationships she's having with these men and that they are, um, building what she calls a queendom uh, in her womb-averse. You know, she's got all these neologisms, these words that she's working with to kind of recreate um, or create her own experience. And so back to the Mama's Gun concept, here is a, a Black artist using her voice, her linguistic power, her articulation of her experience in her own terms. So she's not a baby mama with three baby daddies, right? Which might be one way that um, the dominant culture might see a woman like Badu. And even black folks may sometimes see Badu in that way. Well, how, well, how is she out here talking all this peace and love and she got all these baby daddies and stuff like that? Like this is a thing that people have said about her. Um, but she, as you know, I'm sure Daphne as a fan, you know, she's not trying to hear that. So she, right, right. She ain't, you know, she's not, you know, she, she, she claps back constantly toward these ideas that she, that her, her life and her motherhood and her relationships are supposed to fit any particular norm um, that someone else sets for her, including other black people. And I think that um, the chapter on Badu is a space for me to talk about Mama's Gun, but also to talk about some of those intra-racial narratives and norms and controlling images of motherhood that we within our community sometimes also perpetuate and that are not always um, 
centered on um, the experiences of the black mothers herself. Rather, it's it's more or less she's supposed to represent this thing. She's supposed to guide our our society and our culture and our norms. And you know, well, you know, black mothers are human beings just like anybody else. And so, I really wanted to think about how she's using the idea of the mothership. She is a mothership. She is that beacon of freedom um, that maybe comes from another planet, that maybe comes from another realm, and that she is transforming what maybe our families can look like and still be okay, right? Again, not dysfunctional, but just another kind of a family. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the the, the New America chapter, Um I, I, I was really excited to work on this piece because I did a lot of research into sort of funk music and, and uh, trying to link what she was doing with the mothership into these other histories of funk, which was, was really fun. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it was really interesting to read, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, kind of reading the chapter, I was trying to think, like, okay, who, you know, who is maybe people have conversations about today also that maybe try to fit into this uh, maybe mothership framework or, you know, mama's gun framework. And then I thought about Amber Rose, um, you know, because she, I guess in a way, cause the whole challenging the notion of what a good mom looks like and what it's supposed to do. Right. And also, um, I guess being proactive in a way by holding the, um, the slut walks that she does as well. Um, and she always tried to address her critics. Like I'm challenging this notion of a good mom and, how, and what you got the box you're trying to put me in. So would you consider somebody like Amber Rose and her slut walk to kind of fit into this theme of, of mothership or is it a little bit off the mark? No, I actually, you know, so I hadn't really thought about Amber Rose quite in the way of the mothership, but I think Perhaps. I mean, I think at its most sort of foundational, she's got the mama's gun piece, which again, okay. that, that mama's gun piece is really asking us to think about these these forms of black motherhood that would be typically thought of as bad or, um, you know, not not normal or not good for the kids, not good for the community, this ain't right, all that. Um, and she's turning it on its head and she's using her, in her case, um, not only her voice, her body. I mean, I think Amber Rose is, uh, you know, quite adept at using um, her her actual body, particularly her nude body, you know, in media to really disrupt the ideas of good motherhood. And, and I think that, um, you know, that is a mama's gun kind of orientation. She's, you know, raised, she's a single mother. She's, um, uh, you know, has been a sex worker and um, continues to use sexuality as a key part of her, you know, um, life's work as well as her, you know, her occupation. And so I think that from that standpoint, she is a, a certainly a mama's gun figure. The mothership, I, I tend to think about when I think about that particular trope, I like to kind of attach it to more or less sort of Afrofuturistic manifestations of that. And I, I, you know, I think that Amber Rose may or may not, I mean, I think we could break it down a little bit more about her, but I think that she might not be necessarily the mothership in that concrete way of the sort of Afrofuturistic connection, but she is definitely a mama's gun figure. She's out there um, redefining 
um, black motherhood. Um, Amber Rose, I think, is also this interesting figure in her racial ambivalence or ambiguity, I should say. Um, She's highly attached to black artists. I've never seen Amber Rose call herself a black woman or identify quite in that way. So I Mm -hmm. think that she's attached in a lot of ways to black culture, but she is may or may not be, um, let's see, as rooted in maybe black vernacular cultures as someone like Badu. And, and again, this, I think is just me thinking off the cuff about Amber Rose, but, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I think her racial ambiguity does also kind of intervene in this particular conversation. Mm. To what degree does her like proximity to whiteness, right. Allow her to do certain kinds of things that, you know, other, other black women may or may not be able to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I, but I, I think, that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, Let's see. What do I want to say? So Slut Walk, I think, is a very provocative intervention into norms about women's sexuality and 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 their choices, their sexual choices, their embodied choices of how they dress, how they act, how they are in the world. And so on one level, I really absolutely admire and support those interventions. I do take very seriously, though, the critiques that many women have had about the naming of something like a slut walk and that the the you know, reuse of that language for some women who are absolutely doing the work of interrogating sexuality in the public space, but still don't want to use the word slut as their kind of naming. I I get that. And I think that that's a reasonable um, critique and it's not prudish or, you know, um, you know, you're not conscious, you're not up on the new, new, cause you also have a critique of the use of slut. And I think that for black women, especially taking on that moniker is fraught. It is not easy to go around and say, okay, yeah, I'm also a slut. No, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that's because again, it comes with all that baggage. Um, uh, or I'm a hoe. I mean, there's, but, but those words do get reclaimed. So for some people, there are spaces of power to reclaim and to possess and to, uh, use and, and, um, in these vernacular ways for some people, that's not where they're going to make their intervention, but that doesn't mean that they're not making an intervention. And it doesn't mean that they are, um, you know, I don't know, anti-feminist or anti, you know, woman or, or, you know, behind the times or anything like that. I think we have to make space for everyone's voices at this table. Uh, I, I completely agree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this next maternal figure in the black community, there's a lot of controversy around. This <laughs> you're going to ask about. You know, whatever. So like thinking about that debate, um, um, Nicole Hodges Perry um, talked about uh, the, the, or yeah, the value that Perry's performances may give to the audience, yep. um, especially working in middle-class Black women. Can you just unpack that character and that argument uh, for our listeners? How does Madea, 
uh, fall into the mama's gun framework. So, you know, okay. So, I mean, I think, I hope all your listeners are basically, uh, familiar with the Madea character. Interestingly, we see less and less of Madea in popular culture in the last four or five years. Tyler Perry, every now and then, I think, comes out with another movie, but it's not at the same uh, fever pitch that it was about 10 years ago um, when I really started thinking about Madea. And, you know, there was a new Madea movie every six months, and we were like, oh, wait, okay. And Madea was everywhere. Madea wrote a book. You know, it, it was sort of the, the whole sum total of sort of Black. Uh, entertainment media was uh, centering around this characterization, right? So Tyler Perry, the six foot five performer dressed in, you know, a bad wig, a bad, you know, bodysuit, and, you know, these sort of house clothes and playing this sort of Southern big mama, grandma character named Adia. She was religious, but not really. She did. She also carried a gun in her purse. You know, she supposedly used to be a stripper, but now she, you know, so there's all these sort of narratives about Medea being both like a a wild old granny, but also, you know, a kind of uh, religious figure of wisdom within black families. Um, And so the the argument um, about like sort of the value of Medea and why, you know, we can't just throw Medea out as a a black cultural figure. She's minstrelsy. This is just another bad stereotype. Oh my God, here's a black man in a dress. They always have us in a dress, you know, that, that those kinds of arguments that were uh, popping up about, you know, 10, 8, 10 years ago, um, the argument was that, you know, but wait a minute, this is, Black women are going to see these Medea movies in droves. And can we talk about for a minute what it would mean to make, you know, popular entertainment that catered to and spoke specifically to uh, Black women, right? Because that's not, you know, was not being done, you know, at that time. Here we are, fast forward 10 years, and we see the Ava DuVernay's and we see the Oprah Channel and we see um, all this new work. We see Issa Rae. We see all these moments of black women making um, entertainment that that, uh, it's really for everyone, but that centers um, black women and speaks in a way directly to them um, as the the primary audience. Um, But at the time, we couldn't really fathom that. And Tyler Perry really made a space, I think, for um, Black women to say, okay, girl, we're going to go to the movies on Saturday and we're going to see the new Medea movie and we're going to laugh and it's going to speak to us. Um, So I I take up the concept in the book to, to basically say, I get that. Right. I understand that. And as a black feminist scholar, I'm down for, you know, us thinking about what it means to use our vernacular cultures in these ways that are entertaining for audiences that don't have to be loaded down with a bunch of, um, you know, is it minstrelsy? Is he cooning? Is that, you know, that, that, you know, let it be what it is. And, and that's okay. However, I get that argument, but but my my intervention or the questions or, or uh, position that I take in the book is one that is that says you know it's not so much that I have an issue with the fact that Tyler Perry is dressed as a woman and he's doing this sort of this accent and it it feels kind of over the top right? Really broad kind of comedy, physical comedy, things like that. That's cool. That's, that entertains people. But I am 
really concerned about the idea. Uh, what I saw is a really sort of um, homophobic idea that the problem with Medea was that it was a black man dressed as a woman and that we should be upset by that as a community, that black people should be always upset when black men dress as black women. And so I do a, a brief history of um, black drag and start to think about the ways that black men who have performed in drag as drag queens. I use RuPaul as a central example that the, the history of this sort of drag queen culture is one that is similarly rooted in these sort of um, histories of camp and vaudeville, really broad entertainment spectacle. And that um, what would it be like if our community could think about a figure like RuPaul um, as, a, as a maternal figure also, right? Um, because RuPaul doesn't also come with the baggage that I feel that Tyler Perry does come with, which is that in his role as Medea, he would intervene in these films and lay down a pretty sexist ideology at the end of the day. So we, we would be able to have black women in these spaces laughing and having a good time, enjoying Medea. But if we really start to look at what Medea would say in these moments, A, Medea would out-talk and over-talk any of the other black women in the film. She scolded everyone and told everybody, no, no, baby, don't do this. And, you know, the problem with you is that you, you know, you're bullying your husband and he, you know, and so there's a, a scene I really sort of unpack in the book where I talk about how Medea ends up teaching another man in, a, in um, Medea's family reunion she teaches him how to be a man, which includes not letting his wife speak, you know, making sure that the, the children are properly, you know, uh, corporally punished, that everybody gets spankings and all this stuff, and that the wife is not too, um, not given too much power in the family. And I find that that particular description of Black family life to be very regressive and very sexist, right? So I start to say, well, you know, I don't really have a problem with, you know, a, a brother in a dress. I mean, Black men can dre put dresses on. That's not an issue. But I am upset about, you know, listening to uh, this, this family ideology, this gender ideology that is very limiting and is very harsh towards black women in the name of, uh, you know, good families. And so, um, it's, it's kind of a complicated argument in this chapter, but it's one that I really, um, I tussled with because again, I, I get the idea. I, I don't, I don't want to say, oh, well, every piece of entertainment we have to consume has to be this sort of perfect, uh, political statement and, and everyone has to be a noble Sidney Poitier, you know, kind of black person, <laughs> right. You know, or the, the Aussie Davis Ruby D's of, you know, black, you know, we all, there's trap music, there's ratchetness, there's Tyler Perry, there's stuff out there that people like that's just out there. And as black people, we should have the right to enjoy that stuff too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I agree for sure. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Well, yeah, we appreciate, you know, talking about Mama's Guns. We're, we're not going to talk any more about that because we want you all to go out and buy the book. Yes. Uh, so hopefully <laughs> what you've heard so far has been enough and definitely was enough for us just reading the book and we've read it ourselves as well. Definitely go out and purchase the book and read much more of the work that Dr. David is, has written about. Um, moving forward, so let's talk about um, a piece that I saw circulating around not too long ago that you wrote on Black Perspectives. 
um, that centered on state violence in pregnant black mothers. Um, I think this is important because in the this realm where we're beginning to talk much more about criminal justice, criminal justice reform, who we're paying attention to, who we're not paying attention to as well is equally important. Um, and of course, conversations can be had when we talk about more popular things like police brutality, mm-hmm. Mainly, I mean, against black bodies, but we understand that majority of the people who get the attention are black men and police brutality. But many black women are also experiencing a lot of state violence in that regard as well. Um, But this piece focuses more so on, of course, those who are incarcerated um, and women behind bars and pregnant women behind bars. So why did you feel it was important to kind of highlight this experience of pregnant black women and what makes a difference or are the differences between the experiences of like pregnant white women who are behind bars and things of that nature? So, yeah, this is a great question. Um, For me, um, writing this piece for Black Perspectives really is an extension of the work I do in Mama's Gun. Um, Again, wanting us to reorient our framing of how we think about Black motherhood and that the the only way we can think about um, Black motherhood is through the positive examples, right? We can only really highlight Michelle Obama, you know, as as someone that we, you know, we hold up as this sort of quintessential example and that everything else other than that, when we see it, it has to be, you know, how dare Cardi B be pregnant and and twerking like that? No, we can't have that. That's wrong. You know, what's our community going to, what's going to happen to our community if this happens? You know, so I'm always my work is always trying to intervene in that particular discourse. And so what I wanted to do is kind of a take it out of the um, specifics of sort of cultural representation, literature and film and think about sort of um, the the real world consequences of some of these uh, images and representations and, and sort of say, you know, when we do this thing where we say, well, she was, you know, she wasn't married when she had that baby or, you know, she was, she had gotten arrested. So, you know, maybe she deserves what's happening to her, that we don't continue to denigrate and marginalize our own sisters and our own mothers in these situations just because they don't fit the norms of good motherhood, right? Which are already in some ways stacked against us just because of, um, because of racism. Um, and so thinking about pregnancy, um, and particularly in terms of incarcerated women was sort of, to me, the next logical step. And I'm actually working on another larger essay, um, on images of pregnant black women, thinking about how we, uh, visually understand pregnancy. When we see black women pregnant, what are those norms and controlling images? How do they sort of um, manifest? And so I'm doing this larger historical um, piece. So this mm. this essay for Black Perspectives is just sort of the f- one sort of part of it. And so what I wanted to do was to say, you know, when we're not paying attention to this kind of state violence, then we're not getting to the full spectrum of the problem. And you said it really well, Tyrell, where, you know, we, we need to talk about police brutality and we need to talk about the way brothers are being um, stopped and frisked and um, beat up and illegally detained and all kinds of things shot, right. And murdered, right. In cold blood. Um, I have, three sons. And so I'm, you know, hyper aware of what it means for 
black men to kind of move through this world and, and my own concerns about my own sons having to face um, being pulled over by a police officer, right? But at the same time, when we do that um, work, we we don't look at what state violence is, is this sort of total um this total force. And so, yes, black women may not be getting shot at the rate of black men in our society, but state violence comes in lots of different ways. And I think the most vulnerable space sometimes that black women can be in is in the state of pregnancy or as mothers of young children. And so I really wanted to try to find the way to make that point clear. There's been recent work um, in the last year being done specifically on maternal mortality rates, uh, meaning, you know, when black women give birth, they are um, three to four times more likely to die in childbirth or, or shortly after childbirth than their white counterparts. And this is, there's nothing, you know, there has nothing else to do with anything other than um, racism, right? Kinds of health disparities around race. It's not our bodies are that different or we, you know, these are health disparities that are manifesting in this very serious way. So I wanted to think about you know, what those health disparities mean, what those health disparities then also mean when we then complicate it with uh, questions of incarceration, police harassment, being jailed and not being able to even get out of jail through the money bail system. And there's been a lot of new work being done in the last couple of years to also raise awareness around the, the injustice of the bail system, right, that actually keeps black people um, in imprisoned, right? While they sometimes are just waiting for trial, they have not yet even been uh, convicted, or if they ever will be convicted, you could stay in jail for a year or more, right, and never even be convicted, have a, have a case drop, but you cannot be released because you cannot make the bail, right? Um, bail sometimes as low as $500, right? Low in my view, right, but it's high, right, depending on your perspective or vantage point. But you think about like what it would mean to be incarcerated, awaiting trial, and that what stands between you is five hundred dollars. It's it's to me, it's a very powerful and compelling kind of um, issue. And um, so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of what I what I did with this essay was to bring together these strands. What is state violence? What kind of state violence do women face? What would it be like to be pregnant in these circumstances? What other vulnerabilities are there? And let's sort of look at them um, all together. Um, so that was what the impetus for that piece. And I'm really happy that it got um, sort of taken up um, so well in black perspectives. Yeah, I appreciate that. that was a really good piece. Yeah. So we've had an awesome conversation um, mm -hmm. and just so enlightening. I'm looking forward to the the book or looking forward to more people buying the book. We're going to link it um, and we'll even link our podcast episode where we're discussing like some of the health disparities that uh, you mentioned around pregnancy. Um, so with this conversation, we're wondering, like, is there anything you'd like to um add that we didn't ask that you, you know, just really want to share with our listeners? 
Well, I first want to, you know, thank you both for the opportunity to talk about my work in this way. um, You know, the thing that I really, I think hopefully becomes clear in listening to the podcast with me um, and hopefully encourages uh, the rest of you who are on the the, uh, scholarly path. And even for those of you who are not necessarily wanting to go to graduate school and become scholars, but are just looking to uh, expand your minds right around these particular issues. Like we have to be ready to deal with complexities. I think, you know, when, when our politics ends up being one or the other, as long as it stays binary, you're a good mother or you're a bad mother. And only good mothers deserve our sympathy and attention and, and, uh, help. And those bad mothers, all of y'all, we just, you deserve whatever you get. That binary thinking is, is part of some of the complexities I think that persist in our communities and things that when you're trying to do this sort of anti-racist work and the kind of feminist work that I do, it's really about making things a lot more complicated. But I want to, you know, remind our listeners that that complexity is is really where the work gets done. And, and I encourage uh, folks to find me on Twitter. I'm at, at Afrotelligence on Twitter and um, follow me there. And I, I look forward to conversations, uh, engaging with more people about what I do. So thank you. All right. No, thank you. Appreciate that. And we'll definitely link all that information, uh, social media links and stuff like that when we post this episode, too. So all our listeners pay attention to that. And once again, we'd like to thank Dr. David for taking the time to come chat with us. We really appreciate it. <clears throat> and until next time, friends. All right, Dad, what you think of Dr. David coming in to chat with us? thought it was an awesome interview and I'm happy that uh, maybe this can be the start of a conversation where we are reframing how we think about black mothers and you know the way we support them or like even potentially stereotype them like she made a point about how you know when we think about teen moms you know we think of it like a a forever poverty sentence like that is kind of what we focus on and it would be nice if we can say like okay this happened How can we support you? How can we be a resource to you? Because no, children don't have to be some, you know, sentence to where like, oh, you can't achieve anything else other than that. So, you know, it would be nice to reframe that. And to be honest, I think reframing that or being able to be resources to them has to, we have to like move past wanting to punish people for the decisions. they. Cause I feel like people don't want to help like young moms. Cause it's like, okay, that's what you get. You had, you know, you had a baby or whatnot. So I, I think we should learn how to be like better resources to them so that they can move forward. And we don't have like these generational issues uh, that can be related to like when, you know, women get pregnant early on. So yeah, I agree. Um, I think the whole notion of just understanding the complexities, uh, like Dr. David said, of, you know, one, we understand that human nature, humans are just complex creatures in itself. And but we do like to, I guess it's natural in a way to just create these categories to help us process the world a bit easier. But when we make it so that if you don't fit into any of these kind of binary constructs or whatever it is, then it's just like you have a stigma attached to you or you're a bad person. 
or your life is deprived or you have so many challenges to overcome and you can't, you know, you have this, like you said, this life sentence. If you have a child when you're young or if you're having um, babies, but you're not trying to marry the people you're with. Right. Like it's like this long list of things like, oh, because you don't fit into what you're traditionally supposed to do. You're a bad person. And then we like to either write them off or not include them in conversations or not include them for resources or use it as a way to exclude them from certain resources um, and opportunities because they didn't do the ways that for some reason we think things are supposed to go and life is supposed to go. Um, so I really, I really appreciate that. And even just me asking the questions about my own curiosities when I see like popular culture, things like teen mom and stuff like that, um, and how, you know, she compared it more to like, you know, it's true. Like what I want to see them in the more like black women, more like the teen mom kind of setting. We're not really getting assistance or resources or what would be more helpful for the culture moving us forward is right. Yes. Let's, let's stop seeing us in kind of the dysfunctional, you know, problematic roles, but maybe in the Juno type role. Right. Or, or yeah, maybe um, a black, a young black teen mom who comes from money and is wealthy and, and had a baby. Right. And like that happens as well. <laughs> um, and it's not this kind of just like, Oh, poverty teen mom having babies life sentence. Right. Um, so it's, it's interesting in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Um, how are we breaking it down? Mm-hmm. I also like um, or the appreciate also just appreciate the conversation around Tyler Perry. Um, you know, I can understand, like even she said, like that was a complex chapter to write. Uh, but it's also just, you know, when you're trying to think about all the different dynamics involved with Tyler Perry, like, yes, a black man in drag portraying black women, Tyler Perry writing films that are centered around black women, but still have these sexist undertones attached to it. Uh, but yet still the core audience is still working to middle-class black women as well, still being popular. Um, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to unpack there with that. And then the representations of, uh, black maternal figures and stuff like that. Um, it's no, you know, it has me kind of rethink some things because I, I, I got to admit, you know, I, I was on the bandwagon like, OK, Tyler Perry, you, you, I don't know how I feel about, you know, what you were. I understand the importance of black women and representation in the media. And I think for the time he kind of held the monopoly in that and was one of the only ones doing that. But now I think it's like I want I would like for him to either give the responsibility to more black women in those roles, you know, or like mm-hmm. as far as the writing or cause I feel like mm, you can only go so far, you know, you're a black male having these stories centered around black women. I'm sure he probably has some black women in the writing room, stuff, but his name still attached to everything. I just want to see like, you know, how Oprah pushes like, like Ava DuVernay and other folks, right. Mm-hmm. And gives them the realms to do the work. That's what I want to see Tyler Perry do like, Hey, I'm helping, you know, maybe fund this or resource, but this, this movie is, a product of so-and-so and here's their name um, attached to it. And I just, they just use my, my resources, my production company, whatever. Um, and, and give more of the reins to that because I feel like that's what's needed. Cause I'm like mm-hmm. now, cause you may be doing now more of a disservice um, to the community. If you're trying to hold that position. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and like Dr. Davis said, he, you know, we have seen him move away from like the whole Medea thing. Um, and also, like she said, I I'm just really hopeful about where we are in terms of entertainment, in terms of like the portrayals of black womanhood and black motherhood in general. And just, you know, hoping that we can just 
get people out there. Like maybe if we can, we can have some more crowdsourcing things. Cause when we think about like, you know, Issa Rae isn't focused on motherhood, but when we think about how she has put a different, like qu- the quirky, awkward black woman, like how she's put that at the forefront. So it's just kind of like, you know, maybe there's some more talent out there that, you know, they can start at the YouTube or start wherever. And we can like crowdsource some things and like really push out these new images yeah yeah i agree um and i think i think we're starting to see a lot more of that uh because i i want to say that similar to what we're seeing in the music industry is uh being more generalized in a sense where you don't really have to you know traditionally in the music industry to make you had to really rely on music companies and the industry period uh to make a name for yourself um mm-hmm. but now Again, with things like SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, people like Takashi Six Nine, whomever, uh, start independently and really make a name for themselves without having to go through the traditional gatekeepers. Um, and so, I think now we're beginning to see that into the more, you know, the visual arts when we're talking about TV shows and production, like Issa Rae. Um, you know, with with her YouTube series kind of started that and then that spiraled into what she's doing now with Insecure and many other things. And so I so I think you're right. If we start to pay more attention and highlight these independent works that are completely ran and, and written and formulized, formulized by the whoever it is, the people of color who are in charge of it. And yeah, give them a greater platform. And I think we'll start to see more of the complexities be demonstrated. Uh, within our own culture and our own people. Because I think it's not even just, sometimes I think to the conversation just gets to where we also have to show our complexities for, you know, others, right? For the majority, for white folk, whomever. But I think it's also important that we show complexities to our own community too. Because I think we're also guilty of being like, you know, um, yep, this person doesn't do it this way or this person not acting this way, write them off, you know? And black folk, there's a you could be black and uh, infinite amount of ways and so it's important that that's highlighted too for us to understand yeah and what uh what a chance say if one more label try to sign me it's gonna <laughs> be some you know we gotta do it for ourselves if we want to you know if we want to see things you know that we want to see we gotta do it for ourselves do it for ourselves <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but not yet um but yeah, so I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I, I did watch, like, I, I did watch, uh, haven't watched Tyler Perry movies in a long time. I gave Acrimony a shot a week ago. <laughs> and I was going to say, because, you know, I'm a fan of Taraj, but I'm just like, you know, Tyler Perry's still doing Tyler Perry movies to me. Yeah. I was, hope, I was hoping it'd be a little different, uh, but it was still kind of just like <laughs> over the top dramatics. <laughs> uh, but I guess it's okay. That's his space. That's his lane, you know. That's just not for me. Yeah. Uh, still for some people, I'm sure. Keep watching if you love it. I need, <laughs> well, I, I, he, got, he got an audience for something. He, he got an audience. I can see why people would watch it because of the writing style where it's just like, what? But I'll be like, bro, this is just too, <laughs> a little bit too unrealistic, man. And I'm not going to spoil the movie, but there was this one scene when uh, the young lady gets into a car accident and all the health complications that ensued after this kind of minor car accident was a bit of a stretch to me. And yeah. if those of you who watch the movie, you know what I mean. If when you do watch the movie, you'll know what I mean. And then we can talk about it later when I see you. Yeah, I'll watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But other than that, we appreciate Dr. David coming in to talk with us for all of, like we said, go get her book, purchase it, Mama's Gun. It's a really good book. Um, as always, continue to follow us on social media at BHD Podcast, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, email us, bhdpodcast at gmail.com. Questions, topics you want us to cover, maybe you would like to be a guest, email us w- as well, and we can uh, look into that and see what we want to talk to you about or what you want us to talk to you about. Uh, rate us on in- uh, rate us on Twitter, not rate us on Twitter, rate us on iTunes uh, and review us, and then share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemy, and as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.